Hi there, this is Mythogenist, where I interview the most interesting women you've never heard of. This episode features a conversation with a woman I stumbled across while reading Women Adventure Riders online magazine. While reading, I came across the story of Chelsea and her Overland Motorcycle Odyssey. I was immediately intrigued. She created a life mission of a single, continual, overland journey by motorcycle across the globe while connecting with local artists and creating art installations with them along the way. This lifestyle combined art, solo minimalist motorcycle travel, independence, and other enviable features. She has so far traveled on her bike across the United States twice, through Mexico, and through Guatemala. She started this journey in 2018. The job of an interviewer is to ask questions that get to interesting content. Chelsea made my role easy in this episode, and you'll soon see why. It didn't take much prompting for me to get to the content that was more interesting than the questions I could have even asked. This conversation was a pleasure to have and is rich with excellent detail. Settle in. It's a long one. Enjoy. Well, hey there, Chelsea. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to Mythogenist. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the invitation. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's it was really uh, unexpected and wonderful to hear from you. So very excited. I'm so excited. I have so many questions to ask you, although I suppose we should probably start with some context. I'd love to get just a comprehensive history of where you were born and a little bit about your upbringing. So, okay, let's see. So I was born in a town called Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It's uh, outside of Philly. It's close to a town called Allentown in Pennsylvania and um, not too far from New York either. And it's actually a pretty interesting town because it's one of, it's home to Bethlehem Steel, which is the, well, what used to be the second largest steel manufacturing company in the United States. They were actually were the, the first largest shipbuilding company in the United States. And at their prime in World War One, they built a battleship a day. And that's not even like, you know, just making the parts. They would actually make the metal, make the parts, machine the parts and put it all together and put it on a and on, on the train, which was basically in line with the the manufacturing plant and put it on there and ship it off. So it's a massive, massive steel manufacturing company. And I actually, now it doesn't, now they've turned it off. But when I was really young, it was running. Not to the extent that it was in the past. You know, we weren't making battleships when I was born, but, uh, but they, but it was running. And I remember one of like my early memories as a child was actually looking up at these blast furnaces because there's like a whole series of blast furnaces that run right along the Lehigh River in town. And uh, you would see that blue flame like right above the blast furnace, which, uh, you know, because they could never turn the blast furnaces off, like turning the blast furnaces off takes like years. And they always kept them on because they were always making steel. So I remember like, you know, I mean, I'm sure in its prime, it must have been some other kind of world living in that town because there must have been so much pollution and smoke. And, I, you know, I've seen photos, but uh, 
but I do remember that. And, um, you know, and I remember like the smell of steel and I remember steel and welding and manufacturing being like a really big part of the, of the town. Cause there's a lot of people that worked in the industry, obviously the steel, that's what they call it. The steel, um, hired lots of people all across the, all across, you know, the Lehigh Valley. And, um, and I don't really like directly remember as a child being like, oh, the steel factory, oh, welding, like I should be a welder. I don't, I don't, that wasn't really the case, but I do have these memories and these smells and these, this history that's sort of involved. And so when it, you know, when I eventually ended up getting into metalwork, it like a lot of those memories came back and a lot of that history started becoming a lot more important to me. And that's a lot about like what my work artistically come like and doesn't come from the steel, but it has a lot of my philosophy behind my work. It comes from a few areas, but one of them revolves around memories and creating memories for people and bringing memories to life. And, uh, you know, it's the whole idea of, you know, as artistically, I, I like to create experiences for people that are memorable or recording a, a space that is memorable and making it available to people. Uh, it's a little bit of a different kind of answer than you're looking for, but this <laughs> is where I come from. I come from Bethlehem Steel, and it is a very historic place, and I'm very proud to come from there. So I lived there. I was born there, and then... Um, and please interrupt me anytime. I don't want to, like, talk your ear off too much. <laughs> This is fabulous. I'm loving it. Please keep going. Okay, cool. Uh, and then, so I lived, I was born there. And at that time, my, my dad and my dad, and I don't know, they moved to the Lehigh Valley because of work. Uh, my mom was born in Indianapolis and my dad was born in New York, upstate New York. And so they both moved there because of a job opportunity for my dad. My dad has a really weird history. He got his undergraduate in literature, and then he went to, he got his master's of divinity and became a pastor. And, but the same, all of this time, he was all, he was a builder. And so my grandma always tells the story of my dad being this young kid, like making changes to the house, surprise changes, because my grandpa was like the worst, he couldn't even like hold a hammer. And my dad somehow was this like child who like did all this carpentry. And so when I was young, I always grew up around building, you know, my, there was always tools everywhere. My dad built a loft in our house and did all these modifications to our house, just like he did with his mother's. And, uh, and so I grew up with, I grew up with that. And my, and, and then my brother is an architect so he also, you know, he also grew up around, I mean, we grew up in the same house. We grew up with the same dad who built everything and put hammers in our hands when we were young. And, and the great thing about my dad and also my brother is both of them, you know, my brother's like three years older than me. And um, he and my dad both believed that I should build too. And they weren't like typical, I hate to say that typical men who think that women 
shouldn't or can't hold a hammer and stand next to you and and raise the roof, you know, literally. And uh, but my both my brother and my dad like believed I could, gave me had total confidence that I could learn and teach and become an amazing builder myself. And so I think I think that's a really important element of how I became me because I had these two the two most important men in my life put like complete confidence in me to be able to accomplish what I wanted to do and push my dreams even further than I thought. I remember this one time I came home and you know everyone in little when you're young you have these book reports and and I wanted to do this like book that had secrets in it like I wanted to make like this interactive book where you could like slide you know the panel over and like reveal something about the story you know and I was really young I didn't really know how to build much of anything then but like he's we we made this like really cool like wooden board we painted it and had these like little trays that would come out and like have different levels you know I remember that really vividly because it was probably one of the like the first things I really like made that I presented to a group of people and was like I this is my book report and it was like this crazy thing and so that really inspired me and then I kept making crazy book reports and always like tried to tried to push my dreams and that's you know what my both my parents did and you know my mom might not have been a builder but she sure you know lived without fear and uh inspired me to like to take what my ideas and make them real and so I had a really strong core you know, and I, I, I really put a lot of emphasis on that because they, those three people, my mother, my dad, and my brother are all very driven, very um, visionary people. And, you know, my brother now, he's an architect and he, he lives in Manhattan and he's one of the three architects building the Obama Foundation. Like he is doing crazy things. I don't know, like these things, you know we're here to make the world better and we all have valuable skills so what are what are you going to do with your valuable skills and i like people challenging me like that i like when when people ask me questions like that when i like when people expect a lot and i think that's been difficult for me and it's been great it's been difficult because i expect a lot of people especially those that I keep close. And I think that that, I think that that's great because I've seen people transform in front of me, you know, like basically every intimate long-term relationship that I've had, I've expected, I expect a lot of the person I'm with. And I find that at some point in that relationship, I've pushed the person, I've pushed this person very far. And they've become very different people. And I'm very, you know, that's it's a beautiful thing to see. And I love to see that with people, but I don't get the same in return. And so I, it becomes like this point where I, I'm not flourishing and I'm still pushing this other person. And so then it falls apart. And, and maybe that's part, maybe I'm at fault. You know, maybe I need to like examine that more and why that is or maybe I 
reason why I pick people to be that close to me or maybe I think of relationships like projects, which is probably bad. And (laughs) I I think about that a lot, but (laughs) with my work, it's really good. So, you know, with my work, I, uh, I challenge myself a lot. And the good thing with projects is they come to an end. And unlike people who keep developing projects have a finish date. And that is that side of what keeps me in line in terms of how far I push myself with the challenge. So (laughs) I feel like I was, I've been rambling, but it all has to do with my upbringing, right? Going back. Okay. So, so yeah, I was raised by this really beautiful, powerful group of people. And so my dad worked in construction, raised me and my brother to be comfortable and confident with tools. And then we moved around a lot too. So like, because of my dad's work, we lived in, we always kept our home base in Bethlehem, which I also think is another important factor. We never sold our house when we moved to different places. We always just rented it out. And that really gave me like a, a place. Like the, although we might not have lived in our house, we always returned to our to our home. And so no matter like where in the world we were, there was always this place that was ours. And um and I think that was a lot like we lived in in um England and we lived in Pakistan. We also, when I was really young, we lived in Central America, in Costa Rica, and we even came to Guatemala for a little while. But uh, because of my dad's work, he was getting his PhD in medical anthropology, which is very different. As a family, we were brought to Pakistan because of some of the missionary work that he was doing with a hospital. And he ended up becoming really involved in the communities there. And then it sort of sprung his, his thesis. He was studying male involvement in female childbirth in Baluchistan, which is Northwestern Pakistan tribal areas. So he got permission from a tribal village to stay there for a period of time and do his research. And he, since he couldn't be involved with the women, that's why he focused on male involvement, female childbirth, because he could actually do research on how the men facilitated childbirth and not, but he couldn't obviously be close to the women. So that was the premise of his thesis. And that in his thesis was um, he studied at Brunel University in England, which is why we lived in England. So we would have periods of time that we'd live in England for like a year and then we would go to Pakistan and he'd do some of his research. Sometimes it would be our whole family. Other times it would be just me and my dad. So then we would go back and forth. And at the same time, we'd also go back to our home in, in Bethlehem. So we had this sort of like trifecta of places. You know, we had like the steel town. And then we had the very sophisticated, um, we lived in Oxford in, in England. So it was very like upper class, very sophisticated. And then we lived in Pakistan, which is like very tribal, very rural, very poor. And so with that, it sort of had the whole spectrum, middle class America, upper class England, lower class Pakistan. And so I definitely think that seeing all of those cultures of so close together and through a very important time of my life, like when I was in elementary and middle school, that was pretty powerful. And then to go back 
basically every summer for a lot of summers after that shaped me in terms of how I saw the world, how I saw culture, like what I felt was important. Like uh, also at the same time, all this was happening, there was all of this war and violence happening in Pakistan. And there would be, you know, I'd go back to the United States and they'd be like, that's crazy. You're going there. And then I'd go to Pakistan and they, I would actually be totally fine. Like there maybe be some violence, but I'd have a lot of friends. So I had this contrast of like people telling me that it's like, you're going to die and then going there and having the best time, you know, I had this culture realization of like that people aren't really that accurate when they make judgments about places. That's not to say that there isn't places that are dangerous. That's not to say that there weren't bombings when we were in Pakistan, but generally speaking, you can definitely go there. It's pretty fine as long as you're smart. So that carried with me through my whole life which is probably one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing now. When I uh, think about all the things that happened when I was younger, it's no surprise really how I've turned out. <laughs> but, and I give a lot of credit to my family because they were really pinnacle. And a lot of people could go through that and, and come back, come out with a lot of fear, um, but they didn't. My, my family still misses Pakistan. You know, we all still love it. And uh, me and my brother went back relatively recently to visit friends, and it was amazing. We still have our heart in these other places that we grew them when we were younger. And uh, yeah, so that's sort of my upbringing. Then after, uh, basically after that, after 9-11 and, and a lot of the events that happened after that, we didn't do a lot of moving around in the area because my dad couldn't get access to the village anymore because it was not allowed so we couldn't go there anymore so took a little while to, to get to that point but in the end really didn't work so we ended up all coming back to uh, Bethlehem and and I, I actually went to high school online I didn't go I went to high school normal high school for a year and then I went on to high school online and that was because I had a lot of problems in high school. Like I got involved in a lot of drug abuse and um, I ended up like really wasting a lot of my life. And um, I had made some pretty big mistakes. And uh, that was a very hard time for me and my family at this time, my parents were going through some like really hard stuff. Like my dad wasn't even living at the house and it was just very, very turmoil, basically mostly all related to financial reasons. My parents have had financial problems like since I was born. So they're just very, very bad with money and, um, and very, very bad with business. So especially my dad, my dad can't really run a business successfully, unfortunately, even though he has these visionary ideas. He doesn't really have the the concrete, like, I don't know, strategy planning for, for, for like growing a successful business. So, you know, that's always been really hard. But yeah, and so that high school was really hard. I became, I went from like a top honors student 
you know, going to science competitions at Penn State University to like never going to school. Like, I think one of my records in high school was like, I was absent 184 days of the year, which was like the whole year. So I, it was very bad. And when I look back, I really don't, it's just, that was, yeah, it was like, I wasn't there. I don't even know why they wrote that, but, but, you know, I ended up going to rehab. My parents sent me and, uh, well, like forced me. So I, uh, that was the only reason I was able to pull my life back together. I, I resisted for a long time. You know, I, I relapsed over and over again. And, uh, but I somehow made it out and I didn't die almost a couple times, but my parents were very, as they are committed to their dreams and their visions. When they saw me destroying my life, they put their foot down harder than I ever seen them. Like they, you know, they, they lived with it for many years. And, but then when they saw me really spiraling out of control, they, they said, absolutely not. And the thing about my parents is like, I don't really remember that many times in my life, them being like, no, you can't like, I'm not talking about, you know, oh, I want to go out for ice cream. No, you can't. Like, oh, I want to go to my friend's sleepover. No, you can't. Like, they did that kind of stuff. But like, uh, you know, really no, like some parents, kids are like, I want to, you know, I want to play the flute. And some parents are like, you're not going to play the flute. You're going to play football or whatever. My parents never did anything like that. They were always like, whatever you want to do, if you really want to do it, we'll support you 100%. And, uh, but, and then this time I was like, this is what I want to, this is my life. I get to choose, like, you can't choose. And they were like, no, you cannot do that. And so it was very powerful. I mean, I disregarded it for a long time, but then when I really came around I was like, wow, like even amidst the problems my parents are having, they came together to bring me back and I will never, ever forget that. And I will I never can repay them the gratitude I have for their ability to like band together in their time of desperation to bring me back to life was uh, unbelievable. So I couldn't really fix a lot of the wreckage that I caused during that time. After I sort of came around, I became like pretty much a hermit and I couldn't really talk to any of my, any of the people who were in my life. And I had to like rebuild all of my friends and, um, but it was okay. Like I ended up working out. I really played a lot of music and, and really reconnected with music and sound and, and things that I musically and artistically that I cared about. And that's when I kind of decided I wanted to go to Berkeley and uh, Berkeley College of Music in Boston, not Berkeley in California. And that was, that was a big like anchor because it was a huge goal, a huge dream, like a very lofty one because it's very hard to get in. And I really like ruined my education at that point. And, but then when I decided to go to Berkeley, that was like a re reignition of my, my, my uh, desire to have a big dream. And at that point it was very unrealistic 
and I didn't think I could do it. So what I decided to do is I went to community college uh, in my hometown for two years. Uh, I went to community college and man, that was like the, one of the best decisions I ever did. It, first of all, that community college, I went to Northampton Community College in Bethlehem, is an amazing, amazing school, like very cheap, you know, very down to earth professors, amazing education. And like literally the first class that I went into in that, in that school, Trent changed me. Like I was like, wow, I do love, like, I want to learn everything, (laughs) you know, like I met professors that I'm still friends with who had like my philosophy professor at that school, literally like just, if you talk about stirring the pot, he like threw the pot away and made a new one, you know, and, uh, and he changed so much of my life and like really turned, turned me into back kind of back into the person I was when I was like going to Penn state and winning competitions. And I don't know, just gave me the spirit that I could achieve, uh, you know, what I set my mind to. And, uh, that was amazing. Those two years I was, I became top student in that school. Like I did. So all like, all I focused on was getting, being the best I could at everything that I applied for in that school. So I, I was like on that, I was on the, what was it called? It was like a, one of the honors societies there. And, um, you know, my, GPA was like so good. I, you know, I was like, wow, like I am this person still. <laughs> like I wasn't that person I was before. Like, who is that? Like that ghost who I was for so many years. And, and like, and I think that experience really in, informs me as an artist and as a person, because I saw myself shift through these very polar stages of, polar states of being and and like to the point of like complete 180 degree you know and uh I watched that shift and it didn't even happen over that many years like I guess in the spectrum of my life it is a lot of years but relatively quickly I saw change you know it could be like one class I sat in and I was like whoa like I was even a different person before this class started. And, and I love seeing that. I love seeing that in myself. I love seeing that in other people. I love seeing that in art that I make and, and forms that are made like this, this change from something rigid to something like soft to something geometric to something organic, something, uh, you know, math to matter or, you know, uh, you know, everything exists within the other, but there are points where that polarity is, is far more concentrated. And, um, and so then after those two years, I applied to Berkeley and I, I prepared this piece that I wrote and I, I play a kind of weird style guitar. I play, a, they call it a percussive acoustic. It's where you kind of use the guitar as a, as a drum as well as a, a stringed instrument. And so I made this piece uh, that had brought together that style and uh, cl- like more like in a finger picking style. And, 
and uh, I got in and I got, I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and um, yeah. And so I got in and I wasn't like a, I'm not like a, I mean, I did take music lessons, but I didn't know how to like read music really. Or like, I didn't really know. I had a very good ear, but I was never like really formal, formally, formally trained. So there was a lot I had to learn when I got there. And, um, but I did, I was like committed and I got there. And when I first got there, I, I was really wanted to be a, um, I really wanted to write music and create sounds for film and video games. That was like my thing. I was like, really wanted to do that. And that was because I played a lot of video games because I was hermit for so many years. <laughs> Cause when I was trying to put my life back together, <laughs> it was a big part of my life. So I wanted to, to do that. And so I went there and there was a program there basically specifically for that. There was a film scoring major and then there was a video game scoring minor. So there was very oriented towards that. And so I sort of went on that track and then I took this class at the same time I was kind of like missing building things, you know, like I would be like working on the computer for hours and I was like, oh, I kind of like miss, I'd hear my dad and my brother like building stuff, like the projects they're making. And I'd kind of be like, Oh, I, I kind of miss that. Like, I don't, there's no workshop at Berkeley. Like Berkeley's cool. Great. And I love it here, but like, there's nothing for me to make. And I like, haven't touched any, made anything in so long. So I took this class. It was a programming class. It was a uh, like a it was it was a max. It was, class was called Max MSP, which is a, a programming environment for creatives that uses a lot of visuals and sound. It's not like uh, you know, it's not like a bunch of a wall of text. It's more like a object oriented, object based programming language where you can build environments and uh, use sensors and all kinds of things. And uh, I took this class and I was like, wow, it, like blew my mind because that opened up a whole world where I could bring together sound and audio into the physical world. And I was like, wow, like, okay, I've been like f doing film scoring for a while now and and that's been fun, but this is way better. <laughs> like I could actually program like hand sensors and light sensors to create music and to bring the world into the sound, make the world a, a sound installation. And, and I just was like, okay, <laughs> switching majors <laughs> and changing, not going to do that. Like can't do that film score anymore. Like now I just want to do this. And so I switched majors to EPD, which is electronic production and design. And that is a major, they used to call it music synthesis, but basically it's a major where it like teaches you, you know, electronic music essentially, but also you can take it in a, a bunch of different routes. Like it's, you don't have, just have to be a DJ. You can like be someone who designs synthesizers or you can work in, you can like be a, an engineer, a sound engineer, or you can design actual electronic circuits to make keyboards and stuff. And 
uh, or you can be a programmer or you can be a, an installation artist. I didn't meet anyone else who was really doing installation art, but, but I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to make environments for people to have experiences, you know, like a video game does that. And a video game may has gives people experiences, but it was too disjointed for me. It was too separated from the real world. And that's when I really like loved installation art and programming and audio environments. And, you know, I was always an artist, like, you know, I did audio in the past and music and I worked with my dad and built things with him and, you know, did woodworking and metalworking. But when I started that class, like, I guess you could say that's when I really like realized that I was an artist and that's when I really wanted to become. Is an artist something you become or are you always an artist? I don't know. I think you're always an artist and then just, you just refine your skill and you become uh, more perceptive and more able to express yourself in creative ways. So I, but I, so I really realized I wanted to pursue that vision, that sight as an artist. And, um, and I took, I took a class called light art. Um, and that was uh, also blew my mind because I went from this programming audio class to going to a light art class where I was programming lights with audio in the environment. Um, and so then I was, you know, I, I, I had this, this fusion of these two like ephemeral mediums, sound and light. And I, I like, you know, you know, fell in love and just started buying electronics and wiring up stuff in my apartment and trying to make things with all these sensors and like put LEDs all over my, my walls. <laughs> like, and, uh, and actually, when I was at Berkeley, I came in with no scholarship and I left with like full scholarship. Right after that happened, I took the like art class. There's this weird, crazy thing that happened. So it was around Christmas and uh, I want to get my friend blue glass candle holders. And I was really specific and I really wanted to get it for him. And so I kept looking. I looked around Boston, kept looking, not, never could find anything. And so then I looked up this glass studio and uh, I opened, I called the number and this Irish guy picks up. His name is Sean, Sean Clark at Diablo Glass School in Roxbury Crossing, Massachusetts. And he picks up and he's this crazy Irish guy. Like <laughs> he was wild. Like he, I, I started talking to him and he was like, who are you? Where are you from? Tell me about yourself. Like he's that whole conversation was just like him sort of like interviewing me, this random person. I just called him. I was like, Hey, do you have any blue glass candle holders? And then we went into this like half an hour conversation about star Wars to where I was born to all this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh. <laughs> all right. And he, he, at the end of the conversation, he said, just come to Diablo and we'll talk. And so I get on my bike and I got on my bicycle, rode to Roxbury crossing and I met Sean and Sean changed my life in so many ways. I didn't go to a regular art school. I went to a music school. So I didn't have all that. 
So I went to Diablo and I walk in and there's this hot shop, you know, blowing glass, like fire everywhere. <laughs> like Sean is in the middle of making this giant glass sculpture, you know, six feet tall. And it's, uh, it's, he's making it in the hot shop. So he's like pulling glass across the room. And I, I walk in and he tells me to come over and help him. He gives me the torch and tells me where to torch the, the, the sculpture. And there I am like immediately, first second I walk in the door, I'm making this sculpture with Sean. And, and he's like yelling at me and like, you know, fire there, like cooler, like go over there, do this, 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 this. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like running around doing this. And then we finish the sculpture and he puts it in the kneeling kiln and it's over. And then he comes and he, he greets me and like, we sit down and start talking. And, uh, he basically starts talking to me about what I want and who I am and what I go to school for. And, and then he's basically is like, well, if you want blue glass candle holders, you make them. And I, and I'm like, okay, I'd love to. And so he sets me up and I make blue glass candle holders in, in the flat shop, not the hot shop. And I make them and he tells me, come back in, you know, a week. It'll be done. You can pick them up. And so I leave and come back a week later and pick up these candle holders. And he's like, hey, you should stay. He's like, you should stay here and you should learn how to blow glass. And that was like amazing. I mean, he had welders there. He had tools for cutting metal. He had glass, obviously, everything I had won. And so I started gumming all the time. Like I nearly, I spent like as much time at that glass studio as I did at school. And it ended up that I worked in the glass shop all like assisted and and I taught a series of classes about, I call them, I call it hacking arts, where I would teach sound and light programming, interactive audio stuff in relation to glass. We like made light bulbs and, and we made light installations and I taught them about installation artists and uh, learned how to blow glass. Um, and then I came to my end of time, my time at Berkeley and I wanted to do a big project. I wanted to do a public piece of art. I made one of my first big public art pieces called things over time. And, and it's written, it's not like written things over time. It's, I say it that way, but it's things like it, it's written like a math equation, things divided by time. And the piece was really a, a conversation about how things change over time and what comes from that. What's the, what's the outcome of the equation? The piece was so involved. I don't even know how I really pulled it off. For many years, I was, I'm very interested in, you know, obviously, like I said, time and how things change. And, and with that, I'm really interested in like decaying architecture and like path built buildings and like in these kind of sort of derelict spaces. And at the same time, I learned about the Tremont subway station in Boston. And most people don't know about it, but it's actually the first subway station ever to be built in the United States before New York. And it's not operational anymore. You can't access it. But I remember reading about it and I became like obsessed with it. 
And I was like, where is this? Like, how can you get there? I watched videos of people like, like sneaking in and, and, and seeing it. It was so beautiful. It had a, such different architecture to the n- normal subways. It was much tighter tunnels and like made out of these really beautiful bricks. And, um, and, uh, so I was like, I need to go in there. I need to like document this place. Nobody knows about this. It's like a huge piece of history for Boston. So uh, it took months, months and months and to get permission. I had to go to the MBTA and I had to get permission from some arts committee. And then I had to get training. I had to, I brought a whole audio team down, Berkeley members, and we brought, and we had to get insurance, like $5 million insurance. And uh, I had to get it for the whole team. I had to have a police officer who was, who was designated to be with us the entire time we were down there. They had to like turn the trains off for us to get there. Uh, it was crazy. And, um, but we, I did, I got there. And so, and I, I convinced Berkeley to sponsor me. So they gave me like $20,000 worth of high end audio equipment to bring with me in these tunnels. And these tunnels are like old, abandoned, dirty, wet, like animals, not like nice recording space, but they did, they gave me all the stuff. And, uh, and then I went down there for six hours and recorded 360 audio in the space. They captured the space sonically. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to take this space and displace it somewhere else for inside my installation for people to experience. And so uh, I did that. I recorded, it was like four channel audio plus some other audio and all the different little side rooms. We played music in the space. We captured all the different sounds like the dripping water and the interacting with the space, what it sounds like, the reverb, everything. And then um, what I did is I wanted to make a sound chamber for the audio. And inside the chamber, I wanted to replace the walls with a material that never decays. And the glass, glass never decays. And so the experience would be to listen to these, this decaying uh, tunnel, this historic space in a space and through a medium that doesn't decay. And at the same, so it would be like, it was like a quad audio set up inside of this pod. So I took one of those pods, um, like people buy for moving. And so I put this installation inside one of those pods. So I, I did the whole, I replaced all the walls and I, blew all the glass. And the, the, the thing about glass is that it's very expensive. So when I thought about my installation, I was like, oh, that's a problem. Like I can't make all this glass. And, and so, because I can't anneal all the glass it cost me like a fortune. And, um, so then I started thinking, you know, what I could do. And I, I really loved like the, I loved the shards of broken glass I would make. So I would blow these really big spheres and then sometimes I wouldn't anneal them and they would break and they'd they'd become these like beautiful fractured pieces of glass uh, in all different shapes. And and, and the thing is I blew them so thin that they self-annealed so they didn't shatter into a million pieces. 
And so I was like, that's what I should do. I should use shards, pieces of broken glass and reassemble them using resin to create the walls. That way it's not expensive. And that's also interesting to use what's normally considered a mistake. And then I got polycarbonate panels and poured resin on the panels and reassembled them, like creating landscapes of glass. And then I replaced the walls inside of the pod and put the sound, put four channel audio inside. And then when you played the audio, it would vibrate into the glass and you hear the glass like tickling each other as you would be listening to the tunnels, especially when the trains went by. That was that was a, that was the end of Berkeley. So and that got peace got a lot of attention, and um, it started a, a longer series of pieces that I call sound portraits, sonic portraits, and that's like where I go places and I capture the sonic environment of the space. So still making those, and then after that, I after Berkeley, I was like, I need to do more of this. I want to do a lot more of this. And so I was like, where can I do this? And then I was like, well, Burning Man, I can do art that at Burning Man because that's the biggest platform in the United States for art, for big art that doesn't have a bunch of like restrictions on it, regulations. And so I found a project being made, an interactive audio visual piece, and I became part of the team and uh, went to Burning Man for my first time. And that was incredible. That sealed the deal. You know, <laughs> if I wasn't already committed, that was like, well, yep, this is what I want to do <laughs> forever. I want to make big art. And then after Burning Man, I was like, well, I really want to ride a motorcycle across the country. And of course, my parents we're just like, oh, cool. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and so the weekend before I left to go to Burning Man, I went and took my motorcycle test. I got my license. And then after Burning Man, I was in California and I had my security deposit for my apartment. And I, I bought a bike, my first bike. I bought it for $1,400. And after that, I didn't have any money. So I, got the, I took the bike and I got a job as a as a courier i just did, i just wanted to get some money so i could start my trip i didn't want to like get a real job and uh so i got i worked for 2 weeks basically that's how i learned how to ride a motorcycle because i didn't really know how to ride before and then i got a courier in the city and really learned and then after 2 weeks with like a couple hundred dollars i started my first trip on a motorcycle and i rode from California all the way back to the East coast in like two months. And I was, I didn't stay, I didn't pay for a single night of lodging. I told myself I'm going to camp the whole way, not going to pay for lodging. I don't have money for lodging. I cooked on a campfire every night. And then I rode across the country again and then Burning Man came up again and I got involved in another big project. And I was like, well, I just, I'm going to do that again. So then I, drove my bike again across the country, took a different route, went north instead of south, and then got to Burning Man again and did a big, built the the trees. There were these three big metal trees that were in the middle of the temple at Burning Man. One of the three people who built them. I was just like, all right, 
where next? And I sat down at the table and I drew a big line all the way around the world. And I was just like, that's what I want to do. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to just ride and I'm going to make art and I'm going to figure out how to do it at the same time. And then I was like saving up some money. I like was going to buy this new bike. And then I got hit by a taxi. I broke my back and I couldn't go anywhere. I had gave all of my savings to this now what was lawsuit that I was at, at in with the taxi company. The taxi company was claiming that they never even hit me, which was absolutely insane because I was just sitting on my bike and they came up behind me in San Francisco and, and uh, crashed into me. And so, but it was terrible. And so for, so I had to recover and I had to get constant care and I couldn't leave the country because I had this lawsuit. So for that time, so after I recovered a little, I ended up getting a job in the Bay Area as a fabricator for a art fabrication company. We built big sculptures all over the United States, like really big public art pieces. And it was actually, you know, now that I think back to what happened, it was horrible that the accident happened. I wish it never did, but it was, I did spend that time very valuable. I was very valuable and I really learned, like I was a good fabricator before, but I became expert fabricator after those couple years because I was building giant sculptures and given a lot of responsibility to create them. And, uh, and at the same time, they also learned I was uh, really good with sound. You know, I was very knowledgeable of sound and light. And I, I, then I started doing all of their, their tech for all of the sculptures. So it was, uh, you know, I worked all the time, but, and I basically was waiting for the lawsuit to be done, which took three years. And, um, finally it was over. They, I was almost going to lose. And, uh, because there was no video footage, like there was no witnesses that it was the lawyers that they had were like really big shots and it was very looking very bad. And, um, I thought I was going to ruin my life because I had so many medical expenses, but didn't I, my lawyer subpoenaed the taxi company and they found video footage that was inside the taxi of the taxi hitting me. And then it was over. I left. I went back to the East Coast. And at the same time, a weird part of the story is um, I, I met someone and he worked with me and I taught him how to ride a motorcycle. And I thought I knew who he was. And he was like, yeah, I want to go. Like, let's like go together. And I was like, okay, yeah, all right. Like you seem really into it and you know how to ride. And now we're, we seem like we have a good relationship you know, I mean, at the time I thought it was, it was okay, but it ended up, it was not good. Probably it should have ended like the first year. And I ended up staying with him through moving back to the East coast. We went back to the East coast, getting ready to leave. And, um, I had horrible problems basically like a month before I left, I ended it. And, it was very hard and terrible and he really didn't, you know, it was very traumatic because he was a big liar and he was not the person I thought he was. And 
I, you know, I put that on myself too. I, I, as we can't always say, even if the person, other person is a liar, you know, it's still an essence of you lying to yourself. So I take it on myself as well. You know, I should have ended it when I had the initial re- gut reaction that I should end it. Why I didn't, my problem. Why I believed in someone. Sometimes I think I believe in I, people too much that I hurt myself. Um, that's great. Like I said, in the beginning of the interview, that's great sometimes, but it's really damaging. And, um, sometimes I just gotta like let people go, um, and realize that maybe I can't change them. I can't make them who I want them to be or who they're not ready to be or whatever. I mean, thank God he could never, he could, it could never have worked if he came. He was very scared. He, he was scared from the beginning. Even when we talked about it at the end, he was like fearful to leave the country to do something like what I'm doing. Thinking that it won't work, thinking that something bad's going to happen. In the end, it was a blessing. Thank goodness, you know, that I just needed to do it myself. It's my, it's my vision. And I feel like it's really important. It was really important for me to do it myself and for me to be here myself. And uh, and so then I left and I, I disconnected myself from all social media for half a year. Basically, my almost my entire time in Mexico, I just disconnected. I didn't want to be part of it. I just wanted to have my experience and figure out what I wanted to do what project I wanted to make, how, like what name I wanted to start building under what the hell I, who the hell, who the hell I was. And, um, and I ended up like meeting a lot of artisans in Mexico and I was so like taken by them because the textiles in Guatemala, in, in Mexico are amazing. And so I kind of made it part of my, my mission around Mexico to sort of like explore these artistic cultures of Mexico. And at the same time, I was riding alone through Mexico, a country I didn't know the language and, you know, just knew a few words when I crossed the border. I was so pathetic. And into into like having to like learn how to communicate with people and really putting myself in danger. Like I I nearly died uh, on my 10th day in Mexico. I was riding up these through these canyons up up in the Copper Canyon. It's like a region of Mexico. And uh, I went on these roads. I was like obsessed with going on these off-road trails. And I love riding off-road. Like I did a lot of off-road riding. I'm well well aware of the skill level and and, uh, techniques required. But like I went on these roads and it started raining and then I got caught in like a landslide and, and I was like in the middle of nowhere, like 50 miles, all directions, nobody. And I got, my bike got taken down the canyon. Like, I don't know how I didn't die. Like I really have, no, it must have been by the grace of God that I did not die because it took my bike down the canyon, like flipped it over, all the gas drained out, like the whole side of the mountain was falling. And then I just was left there. Like I don't even break any bones. How did that happen? And so then I ended up being stranded for like nearly a week out up in these mountains where I didn't have barely any water or food. Like I had to crawl down to my bike and get my tent and stuff and uh, really like go into survival mode. Luckily, before I left for the trip, I got one of these Garmin inReach satellite communicators and I was able to send a message to my family and I was like, guys, it's not good. Like I need help. I don't know if anyone's going to come. And so I, I set up my tent on this corner 
and I waited. I was like, maybe someone will come, you know, it's a road. And so I waited like a couple days, like no one came. My dad contacted the hotel that I stayed at and they contacted the police and the police were like, yeah, right. We're not going up there. And then the woman was like, well, we can contact the locals. We can try and radio the locals because there are local people that live up in these mountains. And it took like days. Eventually they got a hold of someone as I was like going into dehydration and hearing babies crying in the forest. Like uh, it was ridiculous. And so eventually they got a hold of these people, but they didn't have GPS. They don't have phones. Like they don't, I could give them my GPS location, but it would mean nothing. So they had ended up having to like go out and come back and go out, like trying to find me every day. Eventually they found me. And I thought it was like a mirage. Like I thought I saw this car coming and I thought it was fake because so many times I thought I saw people coming, but eventually they came and they got me and they gave me food and took me out. And then I kept riding (laughs) 10th day in the trip and I nearly died. I survived. So I figured that was, that happened now from here on, it must be easier. (laughs) So then I went on and I traveled all 10,000 miles around Mexico. I drove everywhere, saw so many things. And I only paid for lodging four nights of the six months I was there. And that's because people invited me into their homes. I met this motorcycle club, like the first hour I was in Mexico, who connected me with this giant network of motorcyclists all over Mexico. So I ended up staying with like a a motorcyclist all over people I met on the road, like everywhere. Like the only times I bought lodging were like when it was super, super remote and nobody was there. And uh, at the same time, I was visiting these different artisan communities and living with them for periods of time, learning about weaving and and uh, organic natural dyeing and how to use flowers for for dyeing wool and shaving sheep and all these crazy techniques that I've never seen before in these very very rural villages. Then it was just like wow, like, you know, I got like reconnected to that. I started drawing and like. I was recording a lot of audio in the time and like collecting photos and videos of the people I would meet. And at the same time, I launched Onus Mundus Project, which is Latin for one world. It's a coin. It was a term coined by Carl Jung, the founder of analytical psychology. And it means meaningful coincidence. It's like the term that's that sort of means synchronicity, meaningful coincidence. It's the source from which synchronicity is born, the Onus Mundus. And that's why I called it that, because throughout my time in my life, and especially at this point, like the synchronicity of things coming together and flowing towards, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, destiny or or success or or achievement or vision or passion. It was like unmistakable. Like how, how can these elements of the world come together so beautifully? And um, and it also meant what is, was Latin for one world. And I feel like that's something I also really believe in because it is one planet. We have borders, but it's borderless. Like we make those borders. It's, you know, better to call it one world and more, you know, we all need to think of it more as one world than these separate places. Maybe it would make us all feel closer and be more connected and care more about the things to keep us all alive. So that's why I called it Unus Mundus Project. And that's the platform on which I wanted to build my art and I wanted to tell a story. 
the premise of Honest Mundus project is the synchronicity of these three worlds that I am living in, which are art, travel, and exchange. And exchange being like the exchange of stories, the exchange of photos and video of content and history and memories. And so um, that's where it came from. And so and then I got an opportunity to build a very big project in Guatemala. Basically, I could design whatever I wanted. person wanted a very big piece of art, and they wanted something functional but sculptural, which I wasn't really into doing architecture. Never made a big piece of architecture, but uh, ended up having a lot of really powerful experiences around Guatemala, and, and through those experiences, ended up designing a Temescal. And I had a very powerful, which is a, which is a sweat lodge, a Temescal. And I had a very powerful traditional Temescal at Lago de Atitlan, Lake Atitlan in, in Guatemala, and uh, ended up taking that experience as well as my three, three days that I spent on top of camping on top of one of the volcanoes here uh, and translating that into the Temescal. And then I spent a year building it and uh, didn't expect it was going to take that long, but everything takes longer here. And especially when you're the only one driving the project, it takes even longer. And, uh, but it was amazing. It was like the best year of my life. I built with a small group of concrete artisans and, uh, I didn't know how to work with concrete and, um, they didn't know how to weld. So I ended up, we ended up having a really beautiful trade of them teaching me how to use concrete and me teaching them how to weld. And then at the same time, I, I, through synchronicity, got connected with a macadamia farm here who had a bunch of glass blowing equipment. And um, I ended up building a, a little studio for myself on the macadamia farm. And I blew, finally, in the first time in five years, blew glass again. And I, it took me forever because I had to build the studio. I had to cast the crucible and make the blowpipes and 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 collect glass from Antigua, from the bars. And it was very involved, but um, ended up getting it all together and um, blowing the glass and making the panel and doing all the hundreds, so many hundreds of tons of concrete poured into the mountainside and built Vajo, the biggest project I ever made. It's a huge accomplishment. It's really something different that I've made, you know, architecture and art, but uh, it really helped me see a whole nother part of who I am as an artist and push me. And I don't know all the words for it, but uh, it was, it's been, it's amazing. It's, you know, I'm coming to my end of my time here in Guatemala and I'm preparing to leave now. So looking for other projects and other opportunities, applying to lots of artist residencies and and projects here on the way and in the United States and all over the world, trying to really put my fingers out there to get the next big project or see, you know, what, what the world has to offer. That is a lot of talking, <laughs> but that's basically the summary of my life, I guess. Wow. What a life you've lived already. That was a great comprehensive overview. Thank you. Uh, there's so many things I'd like to follow up on, but I'll just pick a couple here. Sure. Um, first of all, you're traveling through Central America, meeting with these different artisan communities and different communities of artists. 
But are you following mainly the Pan American Highway on your motorcycle? Are you following that road the whole way? Yeah, not all the way. Like I, I basically did a big zigzag through Mexico, like depending on where I would be taken, sort of like I, I kind of felt like I was being led through Mexico. Like I made my own path. Yes. But like in another way, I was kind of like being drawn to these different places by something else. And um, and that was really fueled by the different artisan communities that I would be coming, I would come in contact with. So like, you know, I would be in, uh, I would be in Oaxaca and they, I would, I would go, I like one of these, one of these times I went to a, uh, actually one time I was in Mexico city and I traveled to Jalisco, which is Western Mexico. And, um, I went to this artisan fair and I connected with like a bunch of communities and I got their contact information. Some of them were really far up in the mountains. Some people were like, don't come because it's too dangerous. Like, oh, I got to get all these different opinions. And, but then a lot, you know, but then I'd be like, okay. And I'd put it on my map and I sort of like, I was really drawn to certain types of textiles and uh, techniques. And so I would like, you know, make a point to go see them. And then I would just go there slowly. I would normally take the smallest road unless it was a really terrible dirt road because I learned my, I learned from my mistake and I didn't go on any really, really remote trails anymore because it wasn't safe to do that really alone anymore. And, um, and so I would, I would like look on Google maps or like uh, I wouldn't use GPS to get around Mexico. Normally I just use my compass, but I would look on the map to see in general direction of where the town was. And then I would take the smaller roads. So I, you know, I wouldn't stay, I didn't stay on the Pan American highway. I went off on a lot of little roads, um, but eventually I would make it to the town and then I would find my way to the person's house normally by asking the, the center shop owner where this person was, and then they would sort of direct me in the area. And then I would eventually meet up with them and the person would see me coming and they'd be like, what, how did, we didn't think you were actually going to come. And then I, and then I would come and then I would stay with them. And sometimes I would stay for a long time. Like one group of artisans, they're called the Trickies and they live in the mountains of Oaxaca and they have this style of textile that is very detailed, very specific. And they, and they're almost always red and red's my favorite color. So it's no surprise that I was attracted to these people, this group of, uh, um, of locals, um, this community, this culture. And, uh, but so, and, and they, and they take so much time to make one of them, like one huipil, and a huipil is a traditional, uh, it's like a dress, you know, traditional dress for the different areas of, I mean, they're not only in Mexico, they have huipils in Guatemala and all over, um, but they're a traditional style dress and the huipils that the trickies make, um, are, take about a year to make because they're so detailed and they're so, you know, every thread is so small that they have to put on their, that they have to weave. And so, um, 
when I saw, I met some, I met a group of women at an event in Oaxaca and they, they told me I could come and it was in, um, it, the town is called Chicaltawatza. Chico, I always, I have to always think about exactly how to say it. Chicoatzla, that's how you say it. And it's a, a town up in the mountains. It's a very historic town. It's actually a town where there was, there's a lot, there was and, and, and is, although not as much anymore, a huge amount of violence where they, there was actually like a mass killing in one of the villages there. Uh, it's very, very tragic history for these people. And actually their dress was one of the things that made them um, so vulnerable. They, you know, because they would be targeted so easily because they were wearing these bright red, very technical, unmistakable weepeels. And they would be targeted because, um, you know, because of, because they, they, they obviously, if they're wearing this weepeel, they're trickies. And so they would be targeted and killed. So this dress was not only, uh, you know, important to their culture personally, but also historically. And I, so I, besides the fact that I loved them, they were also incredibly interesting to learn about. And no one go up there. There was always, every time I was like, oh my gosh, there's a wee peel of a tricky. And they, people would be like, don't go there. Don't go to Chikotowatsa. And like, don't, don't go up there. But uh, I ended up going and meeting these women at this place and they were like, totally come, 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 come. And I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to you before I'm going to listen to these other people. I ended up going up there and I talked to the shop owner and they showed me the, the place where the people lived. And I ended up staying there for a while, for a couple of weeks. And um, it was, it was one of the best, definitely the best place an experience I had in all of Mexico was living in this town. First of all, it was like the most beautiful place in Mexico that I, that I saw. Like I would, I crest the hill to go into the town and it was just like the biggest mountain ever, like falling into the deepest forests, like sun coming in clouds overhead. Like it was something I just like nearly crashed because it was so beautiful and then I got to this town and it's so, it's so beautiful and small and everybody, you know, obviously everyone knows each other and they have this deep history and all, there's all these textiles and beautiful threads everywhere. And, and I ended up staying with this family and uh, living in their barn and, uh, and I would go and they'd show me how the, they worked with the textiles and how they would do it. And at the same time, they owned a or, organic cornfield and all of these vegetable fields and I ended up harvesting the corn with them one week and um I also they all like I'm crazy that I didn't know this but um I, I mean I don't really know a lot about flowers I guess but at the end of my time there we were sitting around shucking corn in the front lawn and they show started to talk about their the flowers that were around us, these little, I saw them. They were like these little buds all over the place. I didn't know what they were. And they told me that their, their first, like, cause they weren't the weavers. Like this was the fan, like the daughter and her husband of the, the main weavers. And um, they were like, 
these are all orchids and I'm <laughs> orchids are my favorite flower. And, and she, I was like, what are you talking about? She's like every single bud that you see in this whole land that right here are orchids. We're orchid farmers. So come May, all of these orchids are going to bloom and we sell them all over Oaxaca. We take them on our, on our truck and we sell them across Oaxaca and beyond. And I'm just like, what are you, are you serious? Like, and this was a huge farm, like, and they were growing everywhere. Like the tree I sat next to when she told me was covered in these buds, like from the bottom of the base to the tips of the leaves or it was covered in these orchids. And I was just like, holy crap. You were taught saying in May, every single tiny bud that I see is going to become an orchid. And I, I just couldn't believe it. Like there was something really about that experience that, I don't know, like for the whole, all the weeks I was there, I was sitting in, in like, I was surrounded by a treasure that I didn't even know existed in the form of orchids. And this family this such humble, beautiful family who like I lived with, this is like their, that's what they do. They sell orchids and they also have a organic cornfield that they're very proud of. And, and their sisters all weave these beautiful textiles. And, and, and when you go outside of their village, people are scared of their village. Like people will tell you not to go. And it was like, and after I left, like, we all cried. Like, when I left, everyone was so sad. And, like, I, they were just like, please come back. They were like, come back in May, one year. Come back and harvest the orchids with us and travel around Oaxaca. And I was just like, please, yes. Like, I, want, I wish I could stay until May <laughs> so that I could do this with you. And I, I had to go. But it was... Uh, that was one of the most powerful experiences in Mexico. There was a lot of powerful experiences. They were the group I was closest with during my time. I mean, I stayed with a lot of different artisans for a long, for extended periods of time, but they were, they were my closest family while I was there. And um, yeah, and it's always good to know that I could go back and I will go back one day to harvest orchids with them. So, and hopefully then I'll, I'll, you know, by then I'll have no Spanish fluently. So I'll be able to tell them all the things I wanted to say before. And uh, yeah, that will be, that will be amazing. Chelsea, how long have you been in Mexico and Guatemala? I was in Mexico for like six months. Mm -hmm. And I've been in Guatemala for about a year. Okay. So you have this amazing website that has um, a tab that goes through the Unis Mundus project, and there's a map on there with a route. Can you tell me what that is? What in what's intended by that map? Yeah, so that is um, that is. Uh, oh, do you mean the one that is black and green, mm -hmm. or the, yeah? So that map is the map that I drew after the like when I said that I came back from Burning Man and I drew a big map around the world, that is that map. That's that, that's like the, the seed of this trip. If you, I don't, I don't like to actually call it a trip because it's not a trip. It's really just a lifestyle. But um, that is like generally well, like 
what I'm going to do because I do want to go all the way around the world and I want to build art as I go. And how long that's going to take me, I don't, I don't know, probably a long time. Although I, I do not plan on staying anywhere for as long as I stayed, like Guatemala, staying in Guatemala for a year was a lot of time. And, and uh, I don't, I'm not going to do that again. The only way I would do that again is if there was an unlike deniable opportunity to do something. But I really am shifting. Like it was very valuable for me to stay in Guatemala for a year and do what I did. But I need to start moving in the direction of making more pieces in a year and covering more ground. So, um, so, and in Mexico, I spent six months. Mexico's huge. So that wasn't so, I would kind of expect it to stay in Mexico for that long. But, um, um, but I, you know, I don't expect to like, I'm going to be leaving Guatemala. I'm not going to go to Honduras and stay in Honduras for six months. I'm, I'm planning to go much quicker. Um, in, you know, I don't have any huge opportunities in uh, any country until I have some opportunities in Costa Rica and I have some opportunities in Colombia. So I expect I'm going to be in Colombia for probably six months. But uh, through the others, I will probably go relatively quick. I have an artist residency in Costa Rica. so But I don't think I'm going to stay for that long. Costa Rica is very expensive, actually. But yeah. So yes, when people see how much land I've covered and how much time has gone on, they, they laugh and joke and point fingers at me and say that I'm never going to make the map because it's you know, I'm going to be dead before I get around, <laughs> which who knows? Maybe that's true. Maybe it will take me my whole life. I don't know. I don't really like, I'm not here to rush. So, um, and it's not like the end goal isn't to like make destinations. The end goal is to connect with people and build my life. However long that takes is fine. And I like traveling slow. And do you plan to follow the general route of this map? Like the idea is to go from where you are to South America and then over to Africa. Like, is that the. Yeah, that is the plan. Like after I get to Argent, the tip of Argentina, I am going to ship to Asia, but I plan, I have like little plans for each ocean crossing too. Like I think I'm going to get a job on a crewing on a ship that take from Panama to Colombia as a welder. And um, that's going to give me some experience crewing. And because my end goal, like for once I get to Argentina is to take a sailboat. It's called the puddle jump to take a sailboat from um, Argentina to Australia. And it's a very well-traveled route by sailors, but you have to have some kind of experience or contribute. So my plan is to do a sailboat from Argentina to Australia and then um and then there's an artist residency that they have a cooperative with the sh- shipping company called Zim. And they, they give the opportunity for like 20 international artists to do a residency on a shipping container from one location to another. So to go from Africa back to the U.S., my final journey, my final step will be, will be to do that residency, assuming I get accepted. 
So that, that's sort of like general plan. But that is what I want to do. Like once I get to Argentina, my plan is to ship it. Like my plan isn't to go back to the States. You know, I, I never really had a like a return plan. Like, I don't know if I'll ever go back to the States. Like I'm going to go back to visit and I have some work there and stuff. And there's a lot of art opportunities there that I'm pursuing now. You know, there's a lot of art money for the arts in the States. And so I plan to like pursue those opportunities, but to actually move back, I don't know if I'll, I don't know if I'll ever do that. Maybe if my parents get to a place where they need someone to take care of them, maybe that would bring me back. But my parents want to move out of the States, so I don't really know what will happen. So tell me a little more about Bajo. I'm looking at photographs of this place, and can you, for those who haven't seen the pictures, explain how it looks in the architecture? I know it's supposed to mimic a sweat lodge, but how and where exactly did the idea come from? Well, uh, Vahu is a large-scale piece of art and architecture. It is, the primary material is concrete, cast concrete. Uh, the internal structure ha- uses a lot of metal. There's a lot of metal work. And also the front window what I, that I what I call the eye of Ajo is made of blown glass and resin. This was the first piece of architecture that I made. Um, something functional. I never really made functional things besides making functional things for fabrication for like other people. I never really did that. But um, one there's a lot of things that inspired Ajo. I mean. I had an experience in a Temescal at the lake and it was a very traditional Temescal. No, no. When I say traditional, like my, the Temescal I built is not traditional. I didn't try to make it traditional. Traditional Temescal is like very low to the ground. You have to like kneel to get in. It has normally, it has a dirt floor. Like the one I went into was made of fabric and it was, it moved around. It was a Temescal, a Mexican style Temescal. And yeah, and it was normally you'd go in and it has, you have a whole ceremony involved. The ones I've been in are four door Temescals where you go in and they open the door and let people go out four times. You can stay the whole time, which is a four door sit, which means like basically they open the door like every 20 minutes and it's really, really, really hot. Like, like you are burning up inside, like every sweat in your body is pouring out of you and you some people they have the four doors because some people literally cannot take it anymore so you leave and um, is you know it requires your intention and and have a direction you want to go or be open you know open yourself up in um in more ways than you're you normally do and have a spiritual and personal experience and also let your body have that experience too. So my, you know, Vaho has, you know, it's fully functional Temescal, fully functional sweat lodge. And also it gives you a, a whole nother type of experience. Like, you know, when you kneel and go into the Temescal, the traditional one, you have a certain experience. You have the, the dirt on your knees and your hands are dirty and like it smells a certain way. And there's, uh, you know, there's a 
the vapor fills the space a certain way. The sound is a certain way. Like it's all different. It's all very particular. And Vaho has that too. You might not go on your knees and crawl through the dirt, but you have a, a very particular experience. It's very, very powerful space because of, of a lot of reasons. There's a lot of the whole interior is curved. So the sound inside of Vaho is, is uh, very birth-like you could say and the the vessel i used for creating the steam is a stainless vessel and stainless steel and so when you heat it up it actually like crackles and makes like a very like creature-like sound that brings this place to life and the whole thing is cast concrete so when you use the temescal it actually warms up like you know the the water becomes like bath water the walls radiate heat and it stays with the the building for a long time and i don't really like to, i don't really refer to vaho as a building i refer to her as a creature as a goddess because she comes to life when you when you light her she really changes into this other thing and i didn't really experience i didn't really like get that impression of her until I lit her fire for the first time. And I really like felt her come to life. And I, that's how I feel inside of a Temescal. It's very alive. It's very much like a living thing. And I think uh, that connection is definitely made within the two. So, but the way it looks is like when you like, just to give a visual, it all cast concrete and the front is uh, so if you look at the Vaho from the top, if you put, if you if you pretend you're a bird and you fly on above Vaho and you look down, it's all lines. It's all geometry. It's like there's these big stairs that run across the mountain and, the, and there's a big, there's a top platform that's very square and it has these, this seating on top that's, that's very m mimics the stairs um, that run across the mountain mimics the steps and every step is the same height. They're very non-traditional. It's 20 centimeters by 20 centimeter steps. If you look on the inside, it's all curves. If, like the whole main structure is built from these two cast concrete curves that I made as the interior space. So when you go inside, it's all curves. You have curved ceiling. All of the seating is these con concrete, cast concrete curved seating that's that is reminiscent of the seat of the of the stairs outside, except total curves, soft edges, no sharp corners. And then if you look at Vaho from the front, from the face with the eye, you see both lines and curves. So you see the lines from the stairs running across the mountain. You see the main curve of Vaho from the that makes up the interior space. And you see the line that's that's made from the stairs merging into the curve of the interior space. So you have these this conversation between geometry, organic form, and and the fusion of the two. And then at the same time, when you look at the main curve, the first line that I ever drew of Vaho, which was the main curve of her interior space, that's where the water and the fire both live. So if you look on one side of the curve, you see the fire burning and behind it, you see a raw rock face of the mountain because we actually had to chip away the mountain to make space for her. So we had to like use a pickaxe that makes space to put her there. 
And then on the other side of the wall, you see a very clean white concrete surface where the water lives and where the steam is created. So you have this interaction. You have this, this symbiotic nature of water and fire existing within the same space both you, you both necessary to make the steam, which makes the experience, and that all of that exists within that primary curve, which is what all of Vaho grows from is that primary wall. And when what happens is when you're inside Vaho and you're pouring the water over the rocks, when you're uh, loading the fire, the firewood into the fire, if you look out, you see fuego, volcán de fuego, which is this one of the most active volcano, one of the most active volcanoes in Guatemala that explodes hot molten lava at least every 20 minutes and bursting into the air, like huge explosions, like so, so much that you see it pouring down the side of the mountain. And so when you're using the Temescal, you have this experience of watching Fuego explode while you're creating a steam. And at the same time, if you look a little over, you see Volcan de Agua. And that is a water volcano. And that's not active. There's no water coming out of Agua anymore. But it, it used to be so active that it literally flooded the city of Antigua and had to rebuild Antigua in a different location. So, in the, so when you're using this Temescal, this, this place where fire and water come together to have a conversation, to create an experience with, for you, you're watching and looking at the two of the most important volcanoes that exist in Guatemala that are fire and water volcanoes that come from the core of our earth. And I find that to be like so important because the volcanoes and the active landscape of Guatemala is so has made such an impression upon me. I've never lived in a, in a landscape where I saw the core of the earth flying into the air every 20 minutes where I could look across the, the plain and see Pacaya, another volcano, pouring lava in the middle of the night. Like never have I had that such a close interaction with Earth. And so when I built um, the Temescal, it was very much in part due to my experiences at Lago de Atitlan, which is a lake surrounded by volcanoes. And also my time on Acatenango, which is the volcano right next to Volcán de Fuego, which explodes every 20 minutes. And I stayed there for three nights and I watched the volcano explode. And I saw it so vividly that it literally shook my tent like because of how powerful the explosion was. That I would wake up in the morning and there would be ash raining down on my tent. Like that I would stand there and like literally like hear the rocks falling onto the mountainside. Like it was so impressionable. And at the same time, I had spent a month at the lake, this place full of water and liquid. And at, by the time I was done on Akatenango, I was like, my lips were dry. I had barely any water. Like there, there was these two di dynamics of no, of like fire and water, of thirst and and um, liquid to you know. And so making the Temescal is extremely symbolic for me and my experience with the, the landscape here. It's also the experience I had with the Temescal and also my own personal relationship with organic geometry, with these two ideas coming together to create something different of, of 
memory and time and and of uh, of transitioning of become one thing becoming another and how those things make something make an ex- and make experiences for people. Temescal is a perfect place where that kind of interaction happens. You've done so many incredible things with your art that it's almost easy to overlook or forget that you've traveled over 10,000 miles on a motorcycle. Tell me about what life is like doing that. Yeah, so, yeah, it's weird. It's been a long time. Like now I'm getting ready to leave. Like I'm, you know, I uh, I'm getting rid of any like weird little things I collected in the year because I could only carry three bags, you know, like and uh I'm so excited. I can't I just can't wait to be back there. It's a it's every time I get on my bike and go somewhere even though even if it's small, I'm always just like, "Oh my gosh, I can't wait." I like I love Guatemala, but man, I just can't wait to like be back there just riding and exploring and meeting people and going unexpected places. And it's like the thing I was looking for in my life forever. Like, and that might be sound very cliche because it's like, oh, the motorcycle gives you freedom. It's really an extension of yourself, this bike. Uh, so over the years, I've I've come to be become a mechanic. Like I refuse to let other people work on my bike. So I've basically, from my last bike to this bike, I've completely taken apart every single part of my bike. I know how to fix everything. And so I have, besides the fact that I feel motorcycles are this connection to the world, this extension of yourself, I also have this really intimate connection with my bike because... I know every gear, I know every bolt, I know all of the parts and how, what, what has broken, what hasn't, what might need fixing, like all of these things. And then on top of that, I get on my bike and I ride her and it feels like you translate into the bike. Now people who ride will, or even ride bicycles can even understand. It's like like how I'm feeling that day on that bike will translate into my into my riding. Like if I'm scared or if I'm happy or if I'm nervous or angry, you know, when I turn that throttle, whatever's feeling, whatever I'm feeling is going to go exponentially into that engine. And so I, I always found it a very interesting tool to like examine myself because however the bike is reacting is generally how I'm reacting or I, or what I'm feeling, even if I don't feel that very strongly. And, um, and then just the experience of like going through the world on a bike is very different. Like if I were doing it in a car, it would be very different because you, you feel everything, you know, you feel the wind, you feel the rain, you feel the cold and the heat and you're very vulnerable and, people see you and they see that you're vulnerable. And a lot of people see that and are like, oh, that's not good. Like you're going to be a danger because people are going to take advantage of you. Or, But I actually don't agree with that. Of course, crazy things can happen and something terrible could happen, but that can happen when you're walking down the street. My My idea is like this vulnerability that motorcycles give you and especially riding one as a woman gives you more freedom. And I say especially because of a woman, because I find it's, I I feel much safer being a motorcyclist, motorcycling woman than I would be as a backpacking woman, you know, because motorcycles have the, this 
effect on people, whether we want to or not. But like people, one vulnerability gives you better opportunities because people see that you're vulnerable and they want to help you. They want to be part of your journey. They want to like know what it is you're doing, why you're there. And if you're a woman, they want to know even more because they're like, what the hell is this woman doing here? Like, why is she writing by herself? Like she should come and stay at our house and have dinner and like, like hang out with us. I want to know her. And so that opens up the door to like a whole section of people that would never, might never ask you to do that. And then, you know, you're riding a bike, you know, so it's easier to get around. It's easier for people to talk to you. You're already like, you're not behind a window. You're not like, you know, you're not hidden behind these other things. So it's like perfect. It's the perfect tool for conversation. It's the perfect way to expose yourself. And, um, and I like exposing myself, you know, (laughs) I like becoming vulnerable because I feel like it really opens people up and I'm not really scared of, you know, people say vulnerability can make you like get taken advantage of, or, you know, get abducted or, or all these things. But I don't really, I think that's such a small percentage of the world that I'm not really concerned I just love what it gives back, you know, and whether it's like the wind that you feel or the conversation you have at the gas station or the house you end up in on some random night, it's the best way to travel, in my opinion. I I highly recommend any woman out there who is considering riding a motorcycle to get a motorcycle and ride it. Don't listen to whoever tells you that you can't. Uh, it will not make it will make you vulnerable in the best of ways. It will give you confidence. You will learn a new skill. You will feel more free. You will become more powerful if you choose to do it. And even if it's scary, because it will be, because there are times when the motorcycle is very scary because it is not a toy, but it will be so rewarding. So motorcycle travel is amazing. So try it if you have not. Even if it's just a little trip at camping, it's going to be wonderful. It's a hell of an endorsement and something that I've heard women um, motorcyclists say often that it's dramatically changed their life. Yes, totally changes your life. It, whether it's changing it in what you pursue or how you feel about yourself or like, you know, how you feel about other people. Uh, where you, where you, where it takes you, you know, it's like, it's a huge key to a big door that women need to open more. And, uh, I really, really just any woman I can teach, I do. Like, since I've been in Guatemala, I've taught like a handful of women, one of them that's even like right now going, trying to find a bike to buy in Guatemala because she's so changed by it. And, that just makes me so happy. And one of the best things about social media that I found, like it's very, I'm, it takes up a lot of my life and I, I do like doing it generally. And although it takes a lot of time, but one of the things I love the most about it is like some of the reactions I've gotten from people, especially women. I've gotten messages from women that I don't know at all. And they've been like, Hey, I just bought a DR650 because of you. 
And I don't take full credit because obviously she made the decision herself, but she said that to me and I'm like, wow, like she's like, didn't know anything about a DR650 before she started following. And, and, and that just makes me so happy for her. So happy that like my, even my stupid pictures that I post every day are like, I mean, I take a lot of time and posting everything, but like even my silly like posts can, can, can change, can make a woman how give her a little bit more confidence to like make that decision to like buy a bike or quit her job or, or whatever. And I just love those. Like every time I get something from a, a woman, it's like, I read this article and that's, you know, made me want to take a glass class. Like I have a woman who wrote me who start, it's starting to, to do glass making, like making glass art because of, of seeing me work with glass and like, if anything, the reason why I keep coming back and posting and keep telling the story publicly is because you can bash, we can all bash social media a lot, uh, but damn, when it comes back and tells you things like that, like, that's pretty cool. And I'm like, that makes me, that makes me really happy. So shifting gears a little bit, I have to ask, tell me about your most recent piece of art on your body. Tell me about your tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man that <laughs> yeah and if you can describe it to it's it's hard to describe but if you have a way of doing it I would love to hear it okay so I have I have a full body tattoo from my tip of my left foot to all the way up the side of my body across my back and down my left arm I did the tip of my pinky and uh, it's all black. It's all lines. And I designed the whole thing. And it took a long time for me to come and say that. So this piece is based off of a Methuselah tree, a bristlecone pine, which are is a tree that grows in the Western United States, only in Utah, California and Nevada. It's the oldest non-clonal organism in the world, the bristlecone pine. And the oldest one being 5,000 years old. And it's still living. It's just, it looks almost dead when you look at a bristlecone pine. But they're actually living because they have this very, very, very living, like, uh, core inside of the tree that's still alive. But the outside is so weather weather barren and uh you know abused by the wind for so many centuries that uh it almost looks like it had it's completely made up of lines which is why i loved the tree so much when i first saw it a long long time ago uh basically if you look at a bristlecone pine you just see lines like sort of gray engraved into the into the tree and so i was like 18 something I don't remember and I was like all right I'm gonna start looking and so I started looking and looking for artists and uh because I was like you know I was moving into the stage where I considered myself an artist and when I did I was like okay but I'm not a good drawler like I've been I've never like been very confident with my drawing skills so I was always like, uh, like I really want this tattoo, but I can't design it. I'm not a good drawler. 
And so then I just stuck with that idea and I was like, all right, well, I just got to find somebody who can do it, make it for me. And I ended up making this appointment, someone very far away in all the way in Berlin. He's a very well-known tattoo artist. And it was a three year wait for his appointment. And this person like asks you to like give details, what you want with the tattoo, like what's your meaning behind it. You have to write a bunch of stuff. Like you can't have any other tattoos on your body. Very serious. So I waited, 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 waited. And then I went, flew all the way to Germany. And I went into this tattoo appointment and it was horrible. It was so traumatic. It was so bad. He was so critical of my body. Like, it's so vulnerable. You take all your clothes off and stand in front of the stranger, and then they have to design something for you. And he made me feel horrible about myself. He was pointing out all the things in my body that weren't going to be good for the tattoo and, like, telling me how difficult it was going to be and how he didn't even want to do it and, and like, all of this stuff. And I'm standing there, like, naked in front of him, and he's telling me these things. And I, like almost lose my shit. And, and at the same time, he's like not letting me watch him make the design and he's not letting me be part of it. And I had to pay all this money up front to have the tattoo and it's very expensive. And at the time I was so committed to the idea that I was like, I'm not going to leave. Probably just me overreacting. And then I almost come time. He's literally pouring the ink for the tattoo. And my partner at the time comes in and is like, and my, my partner looks at me and is like, is this what you want? He sees how upset I am. And then like burst into tears. And I'm like, I can't, I can't do it. And so I just leave the shop, he takes the money, doesn't give me my money back. And I leave without the tattoo, fly all the way back to the States. And I didn't get it. And it takes me a while and like one or two years pass. And I'm finally like, okay, I'm gonna try again. I ask another, some other tattoo artists, see if they can design it. And I go and I, I visit them and I have not equally bad because that was horrible, but I have pretty bad experiences yet again. Like tattoo artists who say my, say my idea is terrible. Like never call me back after they work with me for like a couple months. It's just a bunch of experiences that were very bad and, and then I, one day I was just like so angry. I had some appointment in New York with the tattoo artist and he ended up like not showing up. And I just came home and I was like, I'm just going to draw it. Like, why can't I draw my tattoo? I can build these sculptures and do all this stuff, but I can't draw this for my body. And so I sit down and I just draw it. And at the end, I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. It's all right. And I go again and try and find someone and it fails. <laughs> and then I'm just like, whatever. Okay. I'm just, I like this design. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit with this and see what happens. And then at that time, like I end my things with my partner, I leave for Mexico. I like don't, I try to get the tattoo before I leave. Like I even make plans, like try and make appointments with people. Nothing, nothing works out. And so then I, get to Guatemala. And then I had this big, like after I broke up with my partner, I had a lot of struggle with my body, which I, I never had before in my whole life. Like I had a lot of bad thoughts about myself after that whole thing ended. It took me a while to like return to being confident. And, but then once I did sort of, I was like, all right, I need to get this tattoo as part of my healing as part of my next step. And so then I started looking for artists and I went on Instagram 
I searched Guatemalan tattoo artists <laughs> and this guy came up and he didn't do my style of the, that I drew, but he did amazing black work and he did really nice lines. And I went to him, his name is Byron, Byron Lines from Guatemala. I, I printed the whole tattoo as big as it would be on my body. And I brought the scroll to him and I rolled it out in front of his table. And I expected what every other tattoo artist was going to. I went in there preparing myself for Byron to be like, oh, this is not possible. Or this is, look, area looks terrible. And I laid it out in front of him. I was like, can we do this? And he's like, that's amazing. I wouldn't change a single line on that piece of art. And I made appointment for a last Valentine's Day. That was my first session. And then uh, in the next four months, we had seven sessions, totaling 38 hours of tattooing. And he went over every pain center of my body. It was the most excruciating thing I ever have experienced. I mean, most, a lot of areas were fine, but some areas I literally cried the whole time because it was so painful because he had to go over it so many times in like black, like deep inside my skin. Uh, but it was the best thing. Like the crazy thing was like, I would, I would, he would do a section and then I would, you know, have to take a break. And then I would look at it on my body and I'd just be like more, more, just put me back on your table. I just want the whole thing because it was the first time like I saw, I mean, it's the most permanent piece of art I ever made, like even more than Vajo on my body forever. And it's so personal. And it's like, he wanted to do it. And it was such an amazing experience and took so long to the longest commitment I ever had. And now I have it on me forever. And I look down at it every day and I remember how long it took. And I remember all of the things that happened to get it there. And and I'm just so grateful. But now when it's on my body and like I move and stretch and kneel, like the tattoo moves in certain ways. That like I couldn't, I, I never expect it to. And when I think about it, it's like, well, maybe I didn't purposely do it, but I know my body more better than anybody. So thank God I'm the only one who did it. And at the end of the day, no one could have ever designed it. No one could ever have done it the way I wanted it done. I had to go through all of those years and all of that struggle to get to the place where I was okay with my own art, to where I was okay to, to say that I was good enough. And just that process of getting to that place with myself and my work was a, was a huge jump in my work as an artist. The tattoo is stunning. Uh, it's absolutely beautiful. I'm also, thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit I know you mentioned this before you're kind of looking at opportunities in the states and all over the world but what's what's in the immediate future for you well I'm you you come to me with that question at a very interesting time because um because I'm kind of asking that of myself uh, as well like even just in these days like since my since Vaho was finished I had an exhibition and that went very well and then after the exhibition my plan was to to leave 
Guatemala. I haven't yet left. And that's because I understand the value of, of using the project that I just completed as a way to help push me to the next place with the next thing I want to do, you know, because I have a lot of momentum, forward momentum from finishing Vajo, a lot of content and videos and, and people following and things like that, that it's a very good place to, to, to submit to magazines and do all of these things and, and submit for residencies. And um, so that's what I've been doing. I've been working basically every day on on getting my media together and and getting myself set up in one like in some way for the next thing, whether that be a project down the road or or some project in another country or or whatever before I go because once I leave it's. It, it, I still, I'm still going to be working on that stuff, but it does become a lot harder because I don't have reliable internet. I, I don't know where I'm going to be staying any, every day, any day. And, um, and then I have all this new content, you know, once I start moving, I'm going to have, you know, new, vi- new kinds of videos and new kinds of photos. And I'm not going to have unlimited amounts of time to go back and edit these things and prepare my kit for these other things. So I've been working on that. And I find it's very valuable to do that now. Uh, but I'm also I'm also a little struggling with, with it right now because another part of me really wants to leave. Um, and so I'm trying, this is the first time since I left that I'm having to really, I'm at a new stage of my project. And it can go a lot of different ways. I mean, I want it to go, keep going up, keep being successful, but it can be successful in different ways, depending on where I put my energy. And so I'm at the place right now where I'm try, trying to decide how to direct it, which way to direct it, and how much in each area I need to, energy I need to put. And also how, how like... I tend to be very mm, critical of myself and very, uh, I expect a lot of myself. So I have to think about that as I plan because I could be asking too much of myself in one period of time. Uh, So I really, you caught me at a very interesting place because literally in this past week, I've been lying in bed every night being like, what is it? where should I put my energy in these days before I go? Like, should I just leave? Should I just like pack my bags and go to Tikal next week? Or should I finish this application that I'm doing? I mean, the thing is, I know I have to make applications for the future because you can't just like apply and suddenly get something. Some of these things I'm applying for won't even come into existence for another year. So it's like more long-term but I, I really am, I really am going through something right now, uh, in terms of how to balance it all, and how how to make sense of my goal and how best to achieve it while doing all of the you know while 
moving forward with the elements that are important to me. And uh, I don't really have the answer yet. I I really don't know. I really don't know how to shape it or how it's going to be shaped yet. Uh, I don't know exactly. I'd like. I really want to leave at the end of the month, which isn't that far away. But um, you know, I I I guess I'm gonna find out. I uh, been talking with a lot of people and. And trying to make that decision time is gonna is keeps time never stops so it's you know whatever decision i make it's being made as i as i am thinking regardless of whether i make a choice right now or not but um but yeah i don't know there's also uh some opportunities that have been asked of me uh like there is an opportunity that i might that might be happening in the middle of the summer, which involves me going to LA, but I don't know. It's not, I can't actually talk about it, but it is um, a very big opportunity. I don't know if it's going to happen. If that happens, it would take me away for a few months, um, but it would be a giant opportunity. So I don't, but then again, I don't know if it's going to even happen. So so that is that's another thing that plays into my like weird place I am at now because it's like I don't know if this thing gonna happen if it doesn't happen then I should have something else like I don't have like a family that has a lot of money I don't have like a a, a pension or or like a, a I didn't work like a giant job that made me tons of money like I don't come from family with money so I don't have you know I have to make money while I go and that's an element that I have to always think about because, you know, the, the I can't make that much money here. So normally I do like freelancing, but I also have to balance freelancing with other jobs, with my ultimate goals of doing large scale sculpture for money. And like, you know, it's a lot of things. It's like very overwhelming. I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty like, in a, I'm definitely in a difficult spot right now in terms of where to put everything and you know i don't know i don't have the answer but i'm just trying the best i can and, and pursuing as many opportunities that really give me energy and uh when i get to the point where i just can't do it anymore and i have to go which might be very soon then i will and then i will just pack my bags and i will get back on my bike and i will leave guatemala behind and continue on see what else is coming so i told his residency in costa rica that i'm gonna be there so i'm gonna ha i'm definitely going i just have to figure out exactly when i admire your willingness and your ability to so smoothly formulate the plan as you're as you're living it yeah i i i'm it's interesting I wish I felt more smooth about it. It's in, it's good that I can at least formulate the words to make it sound more smooth. I, I wish, and I know like, you know, that's my goal. Like, that's what I always strive for in my life, you know? And I feel like sometimes I, you know, things can be a lot smoother when I just chill out. Like sometimes, especially now, I feel maybe I'm just controlling things too much. Maybe, but then there's another part of me that's like, but Chelsea, 
you have to like apply and prepare to some of these things if you're going to accomplish them. You know, like, you know, a big project isn't just going to fall into your lap. Like, you know, you have to, but maybe it will. I don't know. Like maybe it's just, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where the next months go. I really don't know what's going to, this next year is going to be very, very telling of how the rest of this project and my goals are going to formulate, I think. And I feel a bit out of control. What goal do you have for the next year? What do I have planned? Just one goal. No, just one thing that you hope to accomplish in the next year. I really, I really want someone, I really, just one goal. There's a lot of goals I have. If, if I'm contacted by someone who is interested in my work and wants me to do a project for money, like because I don't think artists should be work for free like I think you know a lot of people think artists should just give their work for free but you know I want to make my living off of this and uh, if someone contacts me and really wants me to do a project you know whether I'm I would be so that would be great like I really want that to happen I really like that's one of the reasons I'm preparing all of my media for submitting to like magazines and all these places because I wanted to reach someone or or an organization or you know some kind of arts community or something that is like hey come and build and and spend like three months here and build this thing and teach some classes and do this if something like that happened that would be amazing. I would be psyched. You know, I just, if it was on the route that I was going, that would be even better. But that, you know, that, I mean, that would, that will probably, that might happen, but I might not get any, it might actually, it might not make me any money. It might actually drive me further into debt because I, I, there's a lot of opportunities I could do like, like that, but I need things that are going to help me continue my goals not that I like do everything for money but like I need to survive like so I if I could make a substantial amount of like a a livable amount of money off of a piece of art that I make this year or something I do that would be a huge goal that's what I that would be my biggest goal of the year I I I would say so because I do make money other ways like I do um voiceover acting uh, like I do pop like uh, I record like sleep stories and some other things like on the side but and like I do I write some like s- meditation stories and record them like I do that for money and I also have a patreon page that people who, who help support me in my and I give them different things in return um so those are some ways I make money on the road, but like, I would really like, it's a lot of work to do all of the things I do and do that. So it would be really cool if the work that I did started making me starting, started making it so that I could, can live off of it more. And 
because that's going to enable me to do a lot more things, not only with for myself, but also for other people. And, and that's really the, like, I'm not trying to become like a, I'm not trying to make a fortune over here. I'm just trying to like make more things happen and, and uh, get paid and get what I need to survive off of my art. And that's really hard to do. You know, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I understand the artist's struggle, you know, like there's a, it's a, for an artist to like say they make all their living off of their art, that's, that's a real, that's a real, uh, that's a real goal, like a very serious thing. And I, I applaud anyone who has gotten there and hopefully I can say, hopefully I can do that too. So if this year I accomplish one step towards that goal, then that will be great. The other thing is to get to South America. I definitely have to get to South America. Like, def needs to cross the Darien Gap. So, how do people get across the Darien Gap? I've actually always wondered that because it's known for its in- impassable. I know. Yeah, it is. Some there have been people who have done it, which is weird, and I don't know. Like, that's there's no gas stations. I don't know how they did that, but um, you can do it by boat and by plane. So there's a bunch of sailboats that like, once you get to Panama, you can like make friends. My plan is to just get to Panama and like make friends with a sailor and then get, take the sailboat to Colombia. So uh, you can do that. There's also like chartered boats and there's plane. You can put your bike or whatever on a plane and, and make the jump. But um it's also so it's all it's all pretty expensive. Like I mean, generally it's about anywhere between like five hundred to twelve hundred dollars, uh, depending on which way you go, uh, to to do that. But uh, yeah, that's how you do it. So my I really gotta you know, hopefully I'll get to like, you know, it depends on this opportunity in L.A. But hopefully I get to like Peru by the end of the year. That would be cool. But it might might just be Colombia. I'm not sure. Well, the joy of it, I suppose, some of the joy of it um, might be that you don't have to know now. It it will. Yeah. yeah. I definitely don't know. <laughs> you know, I could get this thing in L.A. and then be stuck in the States for like a while. But the, the one thing that always determines my return is my bike, uh, which I actually love. And because I can't, you can't just like leave your vehicle anywhere. You, you know, once you bring it into a country, you have to have a temporary import permit and you only have that for a certain amount of time. And if you leave, sometimes they stamp your passport with the bike, which means you cannot leave the country without your bike. And the other ones, like you can leave either if you, like come back before the permit's up or they take your bike or you pay a government facility to hold your bike every day. So it's like, if I go, even if I go to LA, even this thing happens and I go this summer, I still have to come back. I cannot be gone for more than three months, depending on what country I'm in. Um, And so no matter what, like, Nothing's going to hold me for that long, you know, so 
that's always that's always a thing which i love because it's like she my bike is my other half you know and regardless of whether i'm building a project or riding my bike god knows where like i always have to take care of her and i'm never gonna leave and leave her there and and so it's really it's nice nice to have that you know it's like a child except <laughs> let's have <laughs> more fun maybe I don't know I don't have children <laughs> well I certainly hope that in a year or two you'd be willing to come back and tell us what you've been up to yes I would love to for sure yeah that that will be interesting to hear it will be cool to hear where I am now and see where I am then it's, who knows what's going to happen that time <laughs> Great to fill in the the next stage. I hope we get to follow you the whole way. Yeah, sorry for talking so much. I feel like I just blabbed on over here, but it's it's um kind of a big story, I guess. Well, Chelsea, this has been amazing. I've absolutely loved it, and there were so many stories within your story that was absolutely riveting to listen to. Thanks for taking the time to tell me. Well, thank you, Mary. Thanks for listening and uh, and asking all the questions. It's really nice to, to talk to you. I mean, uh, like it's nice. It's also nice to like tell the story as a complete thing, uh, because especially considering like I don't know my conflict and like these anxieties I've been having. You know, um, it's to kind of just be like remember where like what 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 I where I was where I came from and what I'm trying to do and sometimes I get like really caught up and you know figuring it all out but forget that so it's it's really cool to like to say it all thanks for letting me have the space to do that it's really helped me absolutely well I just wonder sometimes your story seems so cohesive and, and it makes such sense as a growth narrative and why things happened in the order that they did and why certain challenges, you know, objectively, if you were to just read your story or listen to it, it all seems to make perfect sense. And, but of course that only works in retrospect or in hindsight, right? In the process, it doesn't feel that way. And I wonder if looking back on where you are now will have the same effect that it was exactly what was supposed to happen, even if, even in the messy parts, um, but it, it created the next step for where you're supposed to be going and where you do go. Yeah, I think it's totally true. And I, I believe that all the things that have happened were very synch- synchronized, even when I was stressing out. And uh, that should, I should care, I should remember that in times like right now, when I feel very overwhelmed, and like I'm making all of these mistakes or something, when I should just trust the process, you know, they say, trust the process let it go. It's just hard because like I'm at this, you know, like you said, in hindsight, I'm probably in a couple of months, maybe I'll think differently. I hope I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will. I just need to chill out. Come on, relax, Chelsea. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Chelsea. This has really been fun. I absolutely loved that. Cool. Thanks so much for taking the time. And I'm super psyched to to listen to all of your podcasts and, and be part of your podcasts and tell everyone about them. So really, really excited. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Mary. Yeah. Keep us informed and, and seriously reach out. Shoot me a line anytime. I would love to, to stay connected. Yeah.